Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. How are you, Rena? Good, Amanda. How are you? Not too bad. You know what? It has suddenly gotten a bit cold here in Sydney and I am really enjoying the cold weather. How about you? Do you like this cold weather? I don't mind it, but I sort of think that we went from this humid rain period then to cold. There's nothing sort of in between. And because it was such a hot summer, I didn't go to the beach as often as I normally would have because it was Mm -hmm. too hot to be there. And now it's like... You've missed out. Yeah, what happened to summer? It just came and went. (laughs) I don't mind that. I really love autumn when you can go out early in the morning, go for a walk and you get that bit of sun, but it's still crisp and cool and, you know, it doesn't last for long because then we're all freezing. Uh, But I quite like the change. (laughs) So that's what I've been enjoying this week. (laughs) Now, let's jump straight into our challenges, Rena. What challenges have you had this week? Well, a scheme that I just recently took carriage of had some outstanding legal bills which hadn't been paid. So I sort of sent them to the committee and I asked the, the lawyer as well to send me the cost agreements and, you know, any correspondence because the files weren't really that adequate that I'd received. And I forwarded these to the committee and they came back to me and they said, and I asked them, I said, have you seen these cost agreements? Were they sent to all owners as per sections 105 and 103 of the Act where any disclosure has to be made to all owners? If, the, if And the committee actually has been pursuing this matter. It's not just a one-off little thing. Mm -hmm. And basically they said that, no, Rena, we haven't seen this cost agreement. I mean, I don't know if that's the case. I'll have to go through some email records. But they also said that the owners hadn't seen it either, that it hadn't been sent to all owners. So Mm -hmm. I'm actually quite surprised. And in a sense, I see this quite often, even when I was working in my previous role, sometimes the managers weren't aware that there is that obligation previously under Section 230A and now under Section 105, to actually send a copy of any legal cost disclosure to all owners. Mm. And I think this has obviously come about because sometimes committees have gone off on tangents, maybe, in terms of, you know, incurring high legal fees and and entering into litigation when the owner's corporation wasn't even aware of what was going on. So I think it's just just a reminder to all Australian managers to basically look at those sections of the Act. So, yeah, Section 105 and 103. The interesting thing I found about the new Section 105, yeah, where previously under the old Act, owners' corporations were required to basically circulate any cost agreement that they received from a lawyer for legal services. Under this Section 105, the way I read it, you're only required to circulate it if it's actually a cost agreement that's going to go before the general meeting for approval. So Section 105 says that if disclosure of costs is made to an owner's corporation for legal services and they are legal services for which approval is required under Section 103. That's right. So if you go to Section 103, that's the section that says if you're going to be commencing legal proceedings or engaging a lawyer, you must approve that engagement and those costs at a general meeting. And there are exemptions there, some very limited exemptions. But basically... um, it was very similar because there was obviously such a true threshold. Like previously, man, if, if there were cost agreements for debt Correct. recovery, they, they weren't and required to be circulated. And that's still the case. That's so still the, the case. Yeah. 
That's still but the case. there is in this new act one of the exemptions for needing general meeting approval for legal services is if the legal services are going to cost less than three thousand dollars. Now, as a lawyer, I still need to issue a cost agreement if I'm doing work that, for example, is going to cost two and a half thousand dollars. I have mm-hmm. to issue it, but under this section one hundred three and one hundred five, it doesn't actually have to be circulated because it's not a cost agreement that is going to go before the general meeting for approval and it's not going before the general meeting for approval because it is less than $3,000 and that falls within one of the exemptions. So I'm not sure if that was the intention of the drafting here, but that is its effect in my view. So I agree with that, Amanda. Um, In this case, this was actually done in March 2016 where Mm. that requirement was not the case. It was still Section 230A Mm. and this matter would probably exceed 15,000 I think anyway the way that it's going so I think that basically part of the issue I think was that the lawyers sometimes they they split the matter into various sections and say Mm. you know rather than having it all in the one cost agreement they'll say you know if we do this it'll be say 5,000 the next one's five so sometimes people are trying to keep within that $15,000 threshold or I think previously it was $12,000 threshold yeah but the problem is that I think that people think, okay, well, it's only going to cost five, but really the minute you start the five, you have to go to to the next stage because sometimes once you've started the process, then you can't just stop it. Mm. Um, You're the person that's actually the the proponent um, of the legal action or the – so you can't just say, oh, no, we're going to stop now halfway through part two. Mm. So I think it's best, I think, that people do know from the beginning that the cost is going to be estimated in this vicinity and that also that there's enough funds earmarked for that purpose in your budget because a lot of the time – when legal fees, and this is the case that's happened with this building, that the legal fees have been so high that basically they run out of money because mm. they hadn't budgeted for any, anything anywhere near that. Yeah. Their, their funds were quite tight to start off with. And then we've had to have a special levy now to basically raise funds to, to keep the scheme functioning. So I think that's where I think a lot of schemes might come unstuck yes. where you find that you know legal action is taken. You know, and then after you need, and they also they need experts reports oh, yeah. in space, so that all adds up, and it's obviously necessary because it needs to be done. But I think the way that the owners are now reacting, thinking, well, hang on, like, why are we raising a special levy? We didn't know that this is the amount of money that was mm. being spent, and it's only until in this case because the only way that owners had found out about it was just at the AGM, mm. and that's usually too late by that time. Yeah, that's right. It's definitely too late by the time you're raising the special levies. It, there really is a duty here for lawyers to meet to accurately estimate legal costs, including disbursements. And when I say disbursements, things like the fees of experts, the fees of barristers, they are all disbursements. And under our legal profession requirements, the the uniform legal profession law that we now have, we are supposed to be including estimates for disbursements in our total estimate of legal costs that we give to clients. But time and again, I see lawyers not doing that. Is that a new requirement, Amanda? Is that something new that's been No, no, that's been there for a long time. We've always been required to give a total estimate of legal costs and legal costs includes disbursements. So it it is difficult a lot of the time, difficult to, to know what an expert is going to charge. You might know that we have the need for an expert or a barrister on the horizon, but we don't necessarily have a quote from them because they haven't been engaged yet. So that it's a difficult task, but mm. it's not one that for that reason should be ignored. A lot of us practicing in this space are very experienced. We've been doing it for a long time. We know 
Yeah, roughly. I mean, roughly, pretty much, we can give yeah, a general idea of <laughs> what litigation's going to cost, you know? Yeah. But I think some lawyers are, are nervous to be overly generous with their estimates, perhaps. They want to be a bit more conservative because they don't want to scare off the potential client who's going to say, wow, is it really going to cost that much? But honestly, I don't see why we shouldn't be realistic. And surely it's bad for business anyway if you are giving an estimate that eventually ends up doubling or tripling. Well, that's not a good look, is it? No, and I think also what happens is that people sort of owners think, well, you know, in some cases it may have been better to remedy the situation to say it's defects, for example. I mean, that's a classic one. Yes. Sometimes you look at the amount of time and money that's going to be expended in the process. You might as well think, well, you know, at least we'll get the work done the way that we want it done, it's done qu- more quickly, efficiently, yeah. and and therefore we'll put in extra for doing it ourselves, but we'll save on sort of legal fees and expert fees, which invariably really don't add value to the yeah. building which, which compared to actually, you know, undertaking works for the building. So Yeah, that's a really yeah. good example. I see that happen yeah. a lot where owners think, gosh, if, if I knew it was going to cost this much, we would have just spent the money doing the work rather than yeah. litigating. So that's something I'm really, in those types of matters, I'm really conscious mm. of accurately estimating and, and preparing, yeah. preparing for the future. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, well, my challenge that I want to talk about today is this. I was contacted by a strata manager who said, Amanda, my building has asked, one of my buildings has asked if we can have a bylaw that bans smoking in the entire complex, so both on common property and within lots. Mm. Now, we're doing a lot of these smoking or non-smoking, I guess, bylaws lately (laughs) while um, owners are going through their bylaw reviews and it's something quite popular to institute a bylaw that says lot owners are responsible for ensuring that smoke does not drift from their lot or their balcony generally onto the common property or into another person's lot. And certainly that smoking on common property is not permitted. Now, this building wants to go one step further and say, we actually want to stop people who are living here from smoking inside their homes. And I said, you know what? I think you can do it. I think If you did it and it was challenged, there is a very good argument that this kind of a bylaw these days is in the best interests of everybody in the building. It is in line with current social expectations and standards. And there is just a mountain of evidence now that smoking and passive smoking in particular is downright bad for you. And It is very difficult to prevent smoke drift from lots onto common property when you're allowing owners, residents to smoke within their lots. Uh, Our buildings, unfortunately, (laughs) at least here in uh, Sydney, are constructed in such a way that all sorts of smells and sounds drift between lots and, and through vents and air conditioning and things like that. And it might be that a bylaw which bans smoking in the building entirely is the only way to solve that problem. What do you think about this, Rena? Yeah, I, that's a common thing that come across my desk at times where there's been smoking issues within schemes, especially when it goes on and on for some time. I think people don't mind if it's an occasional smoke drift, but I think if someone is like a persistent smoker and it's happening all the time, and I think that you will find that some people, and rightly so, I think, I mean, you know, are very disturbed by it and, and don't want it to happen. Mm. I'm actually aware of a case, Amanda, where there was, um, I think this is a few years ago, there was a case where there was success by the lawyers at the time who put forward a bylaw to ban it within the apartment, and they succeeded. This is 
I think maybe five or six years ago. So I think there is a piece there. I'd love to have a look at that if that's a reported case. You can let me know, Rena. And yeah, I will actually have a look and see if I can find it. But and if I've got some uh, some public information on that, I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I think it was a scheme in Ashfield from memory. That was my recollection, but okay. I could be wrong. Because there's uh, certainly cases on on uh, bylaws that prevent smoking on the common property and yeah. and smoke drift, and to say that that's fair. Yeah, but this is the taking it to the next step and. I know this building is conscious of this new part of our legislation that says you can't have a bylaw that is harsh, unconscionable, unconscionable or oppressive and query yeah. whether the bylaw would be challenged on those grounds. And I said, look, mm. absolutely, it would certainly be open to challenge, but I would be prepared to draft it and I think there's an arguable defence of it. Yeah. Why is it a, man, there is a case, I think, where that has already transpired. Mm. And I think that now in, in, in terms of how buildings are constructed now with, I mean, a common, you know, um, cooling towers and yep. vents and things where sometimes it's really hard to stop smoke going between lots. And in a sense, with as we just said in our last podcast about the prices of property in Sydney, I mean, you yeah. buy an apartment and next minute, you know, you've got your neighbour's smoke coming through into your, into your lounge room. I just think mm. the other thing that I find happens a lot that I used to get complaints about is the smoke drift when people are out on balconies. Yes. Um, and it goes up to the apartment above, and that's an issue, I think, when um, if it happens quite often. So they're not actually doing it within their apartment. So they are outside, but then the apartments above that also are receiving that smoke drift when they're trying to sit outside and, and enjoy, you know, and, mm. and enjoy the balcony. So mm. it's quite a tough one. I think that's one of the things that the challenges of apartment living and the close proximity of people leads to such inevitable things. Mm. That will and we have to sort of try and find ways that – obviously ensure people's health and, and um, well-being as, as a priority. Because mm. I think, as you've said, Amanda, um, you know, smoking is definitely documented to be, you know, a killer and, and, and causes of cancer, et cetera. So yes. there's enough evidence um, to that effect. So I think that people should be entitled to have um, a smoke-free mm. apartment. Yes. Well, this is uh, absolutely why I love practicing in this space because you always have these interesting questions that crop up. Uh, that the legislation is trailing behind and we solve them mm. as we go along, which I think is really exciting and why I love being a strata lawyer. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, I, well, I also enjoy being a strata manager as well because every day you get a different issue or a different challenge. And I think that it doesn't really matter how long you've been practicing. There's always something new. So yeah. it keeps you on your toes. Yep, definitely. Now, Rena, what's been going well for you this week? What is your win that you'd like to share? In a recent committee meeting that I had, we had to include a motion about um, reviewing the bylaws for the 30 November deadline for consolidation. Mm -hmm. And it's it's been a really interesting exercise because this particular building even didn't even they weren't even aware of all their bylaws to start off with, which I thought was quite strange as a committee. But anyway, I suppose um, <laughs> their previous manager wasn't sort of keeping them abreast of them. And they've actually now realised, man, and this is why I think this process is, is quite a good thing, that their bylaws are quite inadequate. Mm. And there's hardly there's the model they have the model bylaws from 1996 Act, and they've had a few special bylaws that have been added for people's you know extensions and renovations. Mm -hmm. But I think now that instead of and I do recall in when I was managing others larger schemes, sometimes there was a problem, and then you you try and and address it through a new bylaw. But rather than doing this on a piecemeal or ad hoc reactive way, this is mm. a really good way now for schemes, and they've got hopefully enough time unless someone wants to try and add another special bylaw in, in that time frame, to, to really sit down and, and look at their bylaws 
and review them and say, okay, well, what are the issues that we've had? What are the complaints that we received? What things do we want our building to focus on? And then they've been able to look at, you know, bylaws in a holistic manner rather than in a piecemeal ad hoc way and reactive Mm. way where you try and just address an issue by passing a bylaw about this or that. So I think it's Mm. it's been quite a good process um, to actually go through that. And I think that buildings that do this, and some buildings have actually formed subcommittees as well to to go through this yeah, process. Yeah, good idea. It's also um, a very, very good handy way because you get a bit of a broader perspective if you've got other people involved in addition to the committee members. So it's been yeah. quite a, a good thing. Yeah, look, I agree. And for any listeners who aren't aware, what we're talking about here is the requirement in the new New South Wales law for owners corporations to review their bylaws within 12 months of the new legislation coming in. So that's why we say you've got until the 30th of November this year, 2017, to conduct your bylaw reviews. And I'm seeing the same thing, Rena. I'm seeing some committees really band together, have forum information nights with owners to get their feedback on, hey, what, what do you think's working? What's not working? What are you concerned about? What should we be dealing with in our bylaws and taking all of those different views into account and, yes, establishing subcommittees and really spending the time to engage in that process and make sure they've got a good, solid set of bylaws at the end of the day. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very good positive exercise and I think that um, one of the reforms that has been a great one has been this particular clause, which I think people would have thought initially, oh, no, there's more work to do and mm. deadline. But really, it's actually it's like having a constitution for a company. I mean, you normally start off with a good constitution and you make amendments, whereas some buildings you know, have a very basic you know, sort of um, basic bylaws that really in, in this current day and age, yep. you know, they're over 20 years old. I yeah, mean, they're just they don't they're cut it. Yep. No. yep, excellent. I agree. Okay, well, the good news that I want to share this week is that we have two new books out on the new strata law in New South Wales, and these books are by Gary Bugden and Alex Ilkin. Now, these names will be familiar to a lot of our listeners, and I think I've actually had a couple of guests on the podcast who have found a lot of valuable information in Alex Ilkin's strata management books in particular, where he gives commentary on the Act and and step-by-step guides to how to navigate your way through the Act. And I think one of those guests said, when is the 2015 version coming out for the 2015 Act? Well, here it is. It's out. And there is also another book by Gary Bugden, another very well-respected strata lawyer. And I will put links to where you can purchase those books in the show notes. I know there's lots of managers out there who have been eagerly Mm -hmm. awaiting them, as well as very engaged committee members. So I'll certainly be getting my copies and make sure you get yours. Yeah, I saw uh, Gary last year and he mentioned that he was um, um, finalising his strata New strata, the sort of there's it through CCH, Amanda, the new one as well. Like it used to be binder. Gary's is through CCH, and I'm yeah. pretty sure that Alex's is through um, Thompson Reuters. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, all the tags that I had on on all their books. Actually, <laughs> I sort of knew them off by heart. But anyway, they do a together. great job, and we're very yeah. lucky, very lucky yeah. to have them. So we'll support them by purchasing those books. Yeah, Excellent. definitely. Well, I think that's it from me this week, Rena. Anything else from you? No, all good, Amanda. So (laughs) see you next time. Catch you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. 
You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? 